Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for being here. And I'm joined right now by Mr. Stephen Bassett. And welcome back to the program, Stephen. It's great to be with you again, Michael. Yes, clockwise. I'm excited to have you here on the program. And you've been quite popular on the program. There's been different individuals out there who have mentioned your name most recently. And we'll get into that in a moment. But before we do, I thought you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how... You got interested in this field, Mr. Bassett. Um, hey, what am I? I'm, I'm, I'm a, at base, a political activist, but you could easily say I'm an exopolitical activist. I'm also a disclosure activist, disclosure advocate, truth advocate. And my job uh, for the last 23 years now, which I took on of my own free will, nobody threatened, uh, is to resolve the extraterrestrial presence issue by political means, which is to say that even by the time I got involved, formally in 96, there was more than enough evidence to affirm the extraterrestrial presence. And, but yet the government's position was, what presence? So clearly, this is a government policy, not a matter of science. Therefore, until we change the policy, we're not going anywhere. Uh, the policy I have come to refer to as the truth embargo and the, uh, the process to end that embargo is called the disclosure movement. And the goal of this movement is, in fact, disclosure itself, but that is a capital D disclosure, formal acknowledgement of the ET presence by heads of state. Who will go first? Which head of state will go first remains to be seen. But once one goes, the rest will follow pretty quickly. And that will be the most profound event in human. That's what I do. Right. Uh, I have a DBA paradigm research group. And over the last 20 years, done a lot of projects, a lot of things to try to move things forward. Probably didn't do enough. Wish I could have done more. Um, 
been a long slog. Uh, a lot of my colleagues have passed, didn't make it. Government doesn't yield up its secrets or its power very easily, as many activists have found over thousands of years. And it hasn't changed. However, we are winning, and I think we will see disclosure sooner than later. I sure hope so, Mr. Bassett. And, of course... Oh, please, by the way, Mike, please yes. call me Steve. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I have a habit of calling everyone Mr. X, Y, and that Z. Is perfectly fine, but you're aging the hell out of me here, man. Just call me Steve. I, I know. I just love doing it. It just, it just sounds so proper sometimes. I know. I know. But uh, it's Steve a habit. I, yeah, I'll, I'll call you Steve. So what exactly was it, though, that, that grabbed your interest and actually made you pursue this? Not many people go into this sort of field already wanting to, I guess, become like an activist of sorts. It usually takes a bit of time uh, to get there. What, what was it for you? Thousands and thousands have got into the field regarding the phenomena, uh, phenomenology research. Uh, certainly there's been, you know, obviously my meds, uh, huge numbers of websites created. In other words, thousands of people engaged in phenomena in a lot of ways. Right. But very few... And, and no one formally had engaged the phenomenon as a political activist, as far as I can tell. But some of the things that were done prior to 96 had an activist tendency. Uh, Peter Gersten's cause that filed some lawsuits that got some great documents. This goes way back. Uh, that was activism. I, I, he probably thought himself as a political activist, so there's some. And then you had the efforts to get something going in the UN in 78, because uh, Edmund Gary of uh, Granada was was saying some interesting things, and they tried to get something going there. Uh, it had modest success, but didn't go too far. It was early, 78. So there's been some. But the formalization of it really wasn't there. And I got it. I decided to get involved in this big way in 96. Um, and by the way, some people get involved overnight. All it takes is one good sighting. That's true. One good sighting. The next day, you're in, you're in with both feet. Uh, I had paid attention to the issue for decades, going all the way back to my teen years, but I did engage it. I simply didn't get involved. Then around 80-something, it was 86, I think, I, I actually, I saw, I just happened to go listen to a lecture, a MUFON lecture by um, uh, J. Allen Hynek, shortly before he died, actually. And that stuck with me. I read some books later on, stuck with me. And I read John Mack's book, Abduction, in 95. It came out in 94, I believe. That really affected me. Uh, and then when it was decision-making time for what are you going to do with the rest of your life, thought about it, decided this was it. Um, and I went and volunteered to work for John Mack. And, and that started in January of 96. Interesting. It was while I was in, yeah, it was while I was in Cambridge that I made another decision, what, which was, I'm not a researcher and I'm not, I'm not, it's not my, it's not a fit for me to be in kind of an academic setting and, and deal with it in that level. But I am a political activist. I always, always knew that, but I, I just didn't have the motivation or the situation to, to do it. Uh, but I decided that's what I was going to do. And I went to Washington in July of 96. Uh, established Paradigm Research Group right away um, and re registered as a lobbyist right away, which was a formal thing. You can walk around Washington and talk to people and not be a registered lobbyist. You really start to affect the potential for votes. You really are getting in there to affect how things are going to vote. Uh, not being registered could be a bit awkward. Um, but uh, no one had done that. Yeah. No one had ever done it. You got into so, this very early then. 96. Yeah. Yeah. So that's 23 years now. I've got colleagues that go back for almost 50 years. In, in terms um, of, I'm sorry to cut you off, but in terms of activism, yeah. it really does take someone very special to actually get into it. Uh, because today, today's individuals who are so-called activists, all their real activism is done online uh, through social media. It's kind of ridiculous. So I do respect uh, that about you. 
Michael, let me uh, uh, let's push back on that a little bit. Look, there's tons of activism going on in America all the time, uh, and, and 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 huge numbers of groups. They're they're NGOs or they're full nonprofits. They're also obviously and the and these these entities have lobbyists. These are the larger issues, environmental and what have you. And there are plenty of other access organizations. It's going on all the time. Um, they don't get the appreciation, frankly, they're going to get because they're activists are pretty much viewed by most people as a pain in the butt. Well, let me clarify. Uh, I, I, meant, I meant those in the in the UFO field. Oh, in the UFO field? Yes. No. When I entered 96, there was no formal political activism. So I was the first to do the right. register as a lobbyist. I was the first to set up a political action committee, uh, the first to uh, bring exo political conferences to Washington, D.C., first to run for Congress in 2002 and get on the November ballot talking about the ET issue. In other words, exopolitical activism on a November congressional ballot. First one to do that. Joe, Joe Buckman, Dr. Joe Buckman was the second. And then, um, oh, he's, my name escapes me. It's in Virginia. Uh, a fellow uh, in Virginia was the third um, and uh, and so forth. So these are easy first because no one else would would do that. True. The truth embargo had had dissuaded virtually the entire population. Don't don't go there. Don't don't touch this issue. You're not going to get paid anything. You're not going to make any money. You're going to have issues and problems. It could affect your family life, whatever. Uh, but I didn't have that problem. I didn't have any money. Didn't have any 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 ties and responsibilities. No kids. No wives. No nothing. But nothing to lose. I was the perfect person to do this. Sure, but what what about yeah? But what about your family? How did they take this? They didn't care. They didn't I, care. I, I, it okay. was a non-issue with them. I, 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 my, my, my parents were already dead and, and, uh, uh okay. I have an older sister and then I have some cousins and so forth off in the hinterlands. And I just, I had no, there was simply nothing. They're not in that my close. That yeah. It would create a problem for. So they weren't that close to you. It's not a question of being close. Well, I, I say that. I'm just saying that, that if you have family, if you have wives, children, if you have careers, jobs, you've got connections, responsibilities, ties, what have you, and right. you go into this issue in 96. You're going to have a lot of grief. You're going to have serious problems. That's what I'm thinking. And that's the government's doing. That's the way they wanted it. They set it up that way. They, they did everything they could to make it that way. In other words, you can't go there. Like they embargoed Cuba. You can't go to Cuba. And 63, 63 on, still still a problem today. There's still an embargo of sorts. You can't go to Cuba. You may want to go, but you can't go. Others can go, but not you. Yes. Uh, not the Americans, rather. Uh, well, they embargoed this issue. I called it a, a truth embargo, and they created an intellectual ghetto. So that if you touch this issue, you're going to be in the ghetto. And boy, you're not, you're not going to like it in there. This has happened before in history. I don't have to get into specifics, do I? Right, right. They did it for the UFO issue, but it's an intellectual ghetto. It doesn't have big walls or bricks or machine guns on turrets. Uh, but nevertheless, it's a nasty business. It's wrong. It should end. It's time to know the truth. I say it's wrong. During the Cold War, it was generally justified. Uh, it's hard to argue that we didn't need that particular profound event taking place with thousands of nukes on immediate launch alert. But uh, after the Cold War ended, we should have gotten this truth out. And it is not not right that we're 20, uh, 28 years after the Cold War and the government is still essentially, though it's breaking down. It's all breaking down right now. We're, we're, we're at the end of the race. I don't want to complain too much. The marathon that we've been running for the last 28 years, I, I used to run uh, marathons, right? Um, 26.2 miles. Well, this is a marathon of a different type. It's 26.2 years plus. But we're reaching the end of the race, so I don't know. I don't want to complain too much, but uh, my lord, they just would not let this go, uh, and and it became it's become an embarrassment, and it's just undermined trust in government, along with so many other things. And one of the reasons why the United States is just not functioning very well 
uh, or to say it more strongly, it's functioning very badly. Oh, yes. And we'll talk about China and Russia in a moment here. I did want to ask you some questions about that. But before we do, the last time I checked up on you, uh, Stephen, or Steve, whichever you prefer, uh, you took a trip to Barcelona. Yeah, I did the UFO World Conference there. It was nice. Uh, met a wonderful artist who'd had an extraordinary contact experience on his own. Went to his studio, uh, heard his story. It's amazing. Nice people. I didn't go back this year, but they had another one. Just, 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 in fact, it's finishing. It just finished a couple of days ago. And that's wild that you went all the way to Barcelona, such a beautiful country. All the way to Barcelona. I've done three tours of Europe, a tour of uh, entire country of Australia. That's wild. I've spoken in Canada. I've spoken in like 20 countries. Uh, Australia is the furthest I've gone. But uh, no, I've given lectures all over Europe on this. And one day I'll do it again, but probably not until after disclosure. Yes. And how do those folks out there feel about disclosure? Well, the ones that come to the, the lectures are fine. I don't know how the general population felt, but there were plenty of enthusiastic people at these, these presentations. And that's the case all over the world. Uh, yeah. I would have to suspect that they were probably a lot more open-minded than some of the governments out there. The... Yeah, it's complicated. Every government's status on this is yeah. different. Uh, it's a multi-layered issue, no doubt. It's the most multi-layered complex yeah. issue in the world. Um, so they're different depending upon circumstance. The one thing they all have in common is that no government's head of state has officially confirmed to their people, his or her people, that uh, there's an extraterrestrial presence. So that they have in common. What they've done, what they've allowed the military to do, investigations, things like that, it varies from country to country. Um, the cultural suppression of the issue varies a great deal. So it's hard to pin them down. But in general, the government's efforts to intellectually ghettoize the issue and maintain the truth embargo by keeping putting bricks in the wall in case a brick falls out there, put a brick back. It, it's less than most other countries in the U.S. Interesting. And of course, you don't live in America for those out there who are wondering. Sometimes I still get questions if you were going to be out here in so-and-so date. And I'm thinking, I'm not quite sure. I didn't read about that, but many people still believe that you are here in America. I am here in America. Permanently. Where'd you think I was, Michael? I thought you were somewhere else. I thought you no, were in the no, UK. No, no. I went to London for a while. I, I don't know. If we may have interviewed while I was in London. I don't know. But uh, I spent a lot of time in London. But you know, I'm an American, and I've been based in America in the same American address for 23 years. But again, I travel a lot, so people may think I'm here or there. Yeah, I thought but, you were. I thought you were living in 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 London. I was. I've had some stretches there, three months, six months. Ah, uh, that's what it was. Six months on the visa, but I mean on the on the rules. But I'm I'm based in America, and in fact, uh, in just a day or two, I'm going to be moving into an office oh. at the National Press Building in Washington D.C., just two blocks from the White House, uh, where I'm going to be working indefinitely. Uh, it's the first time I've had an office. Uh, Real, real office. That's exciting. That was strictly mine. I, I did piggyback on on, on uh, another operation once and had an office, but it wasn't. It was informal. Uh, this will be formal, and it's it's uh, it's in the press building where the National Press Club is housed. I'm a member of that press club, so I'm going to be, and we're going to launch. I'm going to launch a podcast out of it, uh, a exopolitical podcast called the Disclosure Wire, and that probably will finally go on air around early October. And I've got some plans for that that could uh, be very interesting. And I'm hoping that I'm going to get to do a lot of media while, and, uh, once I get rolling and start getting back on CNN and MSNBC and Fox. Nice. Because since all my colleagues are on there, 
I'm having to watch them all the time and I'm not getting calls, but I'm going to, I'm going to fix that. Yes. I've been wondering why your presence on television has been dim as of late. You fall off the Rolodex of the producers. And I really was sort of out of it for a bit. I mean, really, I went to London. I was, I was really out of it. This is yeah. after the election. You were MIA. Uh, in a sense, I was out of the country and not, not engaging. Uh, I had a great deal of coverage. Well, I had a lot of print coverage, 2016, 15, but very little TV coverage. They weren't calling me on that. Uh, and I'm not, this isn't an ego thing. It's, it's if you're an activist and you're not getting on television, particularly reasonably good news shows, you're not getting your message out. You're not having impact. It's, it's simply the matter of efficacy. So uh, I'm hoping that's going to change, and uh, I'll be joining my good friends Richard Dolan and Nick Pope and others who constantly turn up on these shows. They're always and on I TV. Seven. I'm going, I need to be on. Yeah, they always come out on Fox now. Uh, Fox doing a lot right now. But other, interesting. Yeah, they're, they're, Fox has generally been ahead of the M MSNBC and CNN, uh, which is interesting. It's always intrigued me. Uh, why? That's a weird turn other, of events. Yeah, other media entities that are so well known, as it were have far less willingness to engage this issue makes me worried that they're a little bit too much in the government's pocket. No, no, but that's easily to correct. They can correct at any time. And I look forward to, to being on these programs and talking about these issues, but in an exopolitical way, I'm not a researcher. I'm not come on to, right, to, right. to argue some case from 1986. <laughs> yes. I basically come on to tell the truth. And the truth is there's an ET presence here and we need, we need the government to acknowledge that. I'm with you on that one, 100%. And, Good. and again, Stephen, uh, you've taken some criticism over the years. You've been harassed electronically. Uh, a lot of us have. And some people are, are just jerks out there. And, uh, you know, and, and not in the funny sense either. And last Saturday, Mr. Michael Horn was on this program and he went after you just a bit. And I had an audio clip of that, but I'm not going to play that after all. Uh, this uh, mixer here isn't set up, but I could tell you uh, just some of the things he, he quickly said. And I wanted to get your reaction here. Uh, before you do that, let yes. me let me tell you, I'm quite familiar with Michael Horn's yes, thinking sir. about me. I'm sure he's you been are. he's been biting in my ankles for many many years. But by all means, uh, uh, refresh, refresh. He has it. He just, he just has it out for you. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. And I admit, I, I wanted him to be himself. I wanted him not to hold back on anything. And he went and he went for it. And I have to say, maybe it was me being a bad influence because I, I probably instigated it just a bit. But I, I was just having fun and I wasn't expecting him to drive it right in there. But in other words, he was just naming names and just saying how this is phony and this person's a hack. And of course, I was laughing at everything because it was kind of amusing. But of course, I know that this is a serious matter. And, you know, he was going after all sorts of people out there saying that these other cases and the whole To the Stars Academy, that it's it's a big sham, basically. And during the interview, I even, I, of course, this was a joke. I told them, in your prime, Michael, do you think you could take Mr. Bassett in a fight. And, and you know, of course he actually what? answered. Yeah, I was just joking though. I assume you were joking. Of That's, course. Yeah, that, that probably didn't go over well. Uh, I, I am blessed that I have had a minimum of criticism over the years. Uh, maybe because I just am not accomplishing much and I'm doing much and nobody cares. Uh, uh, but, uh, the fact is there's been some, but not too much. I, I feel blessed in that regard. You, you don't, you don't get involved yourself. You don't become a public person. And involve yourself with an issue of this intensity and complexity and controversy. Right. And expect that everybody's just going to, oh, just send you love letters and, and gifts. No. <laughs> a gift basket. You're going to have critics. 
Uh, and I'm aware of disclosure. I'm aware of activist movements in the past where the people that were leading it were just absolutely savaged all the time. No, I've had it. And I haven't been electronically harassed. That, that's a mis, uh, misunderstanding uh, there. Yeah. I think my phone was, and my phone's been tapped off and on. That doesn't surprise me. But beyond that, nothing. Uh, well, there was a server thing at one point, but. Again, it's really nothing really worth uh, making a deal of. I see. I'm not saying that others haven't had this problem, but I've had a pretty easy, easy run. I, I, I don't have any complaints. The government's been very, very good to me, by and large, uh, in that sense. Oh, that's a good thing. Um, and I hope that they, you know, it, it could become even more friendly uh, as we go forward because the post-disclosure world is coming. And I assure you, the government's still going to be there. And the people and, and, and the government are going to have to work together. To uh, decide how we're going to respond to not only the the, the formal acknowledgement and what that means post disclosure world, but very possibly an open contact that may very well follow. Uh, and the government needs to be a partner with us. So uh, I, I've tried not to alienate the government. I'm more than happy to criticize it pretty strongly, but I don't attack it. And I don't try to criminalize it, uh, though it's done some criminal things from time to time. Sure. Nevertheless, uh, there are worse governments than the U.S. I assure you, uh, ours could be a lot better. But overall, uh, I, int- I look forward to working with people inside if they want to, uh, but I'm, I'm never going to be inside. I'm always going to be a populist activist uh, trying to represent the American people. No, that's good to hear. And going back really quickly, I just wanted to say I'm excited to hear your podcast. I'm pretty sure you'll have uh, plenty of interesting guests that will appear on your show. Very. That's a, that's a good insight, Michael, because... I went, I, I got a shot to get in that building. I thought about it before, but I just couldn't do it. And I got a shot to get in the press building. And, uh, this, that circumstance, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be setting up a studio in there and it's gonna be pretty cool. Nice. It's gonna have at least three, possibly four backgrounds for, uh, and remember this is a video podcast. So right, I right. I mention it. Um, and because of the press club, my membership there and the location, everything else, I'm hoping that I'm gonna get some guests on that podcast that have never, uh, uh, spoken, uh, on camera about this issue before guests that are from mainstream. Uh, and there's a lot to choose from. That's a good idea. That's my hope. Yeah. That's my hope. And that would, that would be a very, I think, a powerful contribution to the process. But for that, for that to happen, it's got to be high level. It's got to be very professional. Yeah. I'm going to have a co-host that's very sharp, a lot of contacts. He's the head of Mar- Marilyn Mufon. Name is Teresa Tyndall. She'll be the co-host. And she's going to be helping to bring guests in as well. I think she's going to do that. Uh, and then I'm running a, um, I've got a, uh, Indiegogo, uh, funding up. Uh, it's called the Disclosure Wire. That's the name of the press conference. So the Disclosure Wire, I have links on my website, of course, which is paradigmresearchgroup.org or just Google my name. My website is the first thing that comes up. And there's an Indiegogo and it's trying to raise money. You know, I, I, it's got a goal of 10,000. We've raised about 2,700. But this money, by and large, is going to be the money that's going to get the equipment that's going to make this a high-level podcast. I mean, you can do a podcast with a cell phone. Right? Well, I mean, and, it's and, not so listenable. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, you could do it, even a video podcast. You get the cell phone close enough, and the cell phone will pick up the, the audio. Yeah. You can do it that way. But but as you know, it, 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 it takes some effort and some cost to get it to a, a level that would be considered decently professional. And this one has to be that way. Yes, it does. So uh, we're, we got an Indiegogo go there. And if anybody would like to support the, the Disclosure Wire podcast out of the National Press Building, uh, head on over to that and uh, become a backer. Amazing stuff. I'm looking forward to that. And of course, definitely 
export that into a podcast just for audio. Lots of folks would just want to hear the audio. True. And uh, by the way, there's no perks or anything on this Indiegogo, but this podcast is going to be free. Uh, it'll be put up on my YouTube, Paradigm Research Group's YouTube site. It will also be up on the Disclosure Wire uh, podcast website, which has not been launched yet, but it will be. And then anybody can download it, uh, share it any way they want to, put it up on Amazon, whatever they want to do. I don't care. Uh, it's completely free and completely unlicensed in the sense that it's open to everybody. Spread the word. So that's nice. straight off. And uh, hopefully uh, and it's going to stay. And, oh, we're not going to advertise any products. We're not going to be any advertising. Uh, it's just going to be uh, hopefully a powerful information flow coming right out of Washington, D.C. from the press building, two blocks from the White House. And no launch date yet. No, no. I'm hoping October or very early October. Ah, okay. Uh, but there's so many moving parts right now. First, I got to get in the building. Hopefully, that'll happen with the next day or two uh, and get set up. And that's going to take some time. I've got to get the equipment. I've got to learn how to use it. I've got to learn how to use Premiere, Adobe Premiere editing. Uh, but I'm, I'm relishing this learning curve. I'm just really excited oh, yeah. about it. It's things. fun. Yeah, you'll get into it indeed. But again, if you run into any trouble or need help, I'm here for you free okay. of charge. Free of charge. Okay. Well, yeah. that's, that's, that's the way, that's the way it works in my world. Yeah, man. I'll, I'll help you. I know you're new and I know you have a lot of yeah. important things to say and I will definitely help spread the word. Uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, obviously, you know what you're doing. You've got a nice podcast going and, uh, but I'm going visual, my friend. Yes, gonna sir. Gonna have to dress up, gonna have to, you know, get makeup on or whatever the hell. You gotta look like a TV guy now. You're gonna look like a TV guy. I'll I have to start working out now. My hair. Oh, wait a minute. I have no hair, <laughs> but I'll, I'll make it work. You, you better start working out more often now. I need to do that. And by the way, the building's got a fantastic fitness gym in it, wow. which comes with, the, you know, being a tenant. And so, after years and years of not working out, oh. I'm thinking, okay, if I don't go down to the second floor and work in this gym on a regular basis, I deserve the heart attack I'm going to get. You're going to look like a way. you're going to look like a radio guy. I'm going to buff out. <laughs> I'm going to look like a radio guy. I got to I got to look like a TV. Guy. You got to look like a TV. Fortunately, guy. I haven't gone too far to, to south, but uh, you know, when you're on TV, hey man, uh, you can't look too good. That's right. You got to really. Take care of yourself out there if you're going to be on the big screen there. And of course, yeah, speaking of which, you were mm -hmm. on the television show Ancient Aliens not too long ago, or a couple of days ago. Couple of days ago. Oh, it was last. Days ago. Uh, was it Sunday or Friday? It was Friday. Friday. Uh, did you by any chance see it, Michael? Did you see it? I saw only parts of it because I came oh. in a little bit late. Did you see any part that I was in? Uh, yes, actually, I did. Well, how did I haven't seen it yet? I don't know when I want to get to see it. What? Uh, uh, how did it look? I, mean, I thought it was. I thought it was fine. The only thing okay. I, I the only thing I don't really like about the show is how sometimes they only feature some folks for just a few little parts, not really even like a minute long. Your, your part wasn't really that long. I thought. Well, at least the section you saw. The, yeah, the section uh, that I that they showed the on they TV. Operate. Right. They have a lot of alumni, uh, ancient alien alumni, and they use them. Uh, generally, they try to match the person with the content. Uh, and then there's a lot of production there. And so it, they, they, they minimize the talking head component. So that's just the way they work. If you get a longer segment, then they obviously are really interested in what you're having to add to the program at that point. Uh, so, but I'll take, I'll take every second I can get. Right. By the way, next month, I, I believe, isn't it? There's going to be a two hour special episode, uh, pretty much devoted to disclosure. It's going to be called Countdown to Disclosure. And I'm pretty sure. I'm going to have a lot of time in that because uh, I, I interviewed for five hours. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, on that for that particular show. 
So I'm, I'm hoping that, uh, get some exposure in that and that'll be cool. Uh, Ancient Aliens is a pretty, pretty amazing show. I, I didn't pay much attention in the early years, but finally got into it and began to realize what they were accomplishing. Um, they just, they've, they've introduced the subject to huge numbers of people in a comfortable and entertaining way. Uh, ancient aliens are after all no longer around, right? Right. But then they started getting into modern aliens and, mm. uh, even exopolitics, uh, which is to their great credit. Kevin Burns is the writer and the creator behind that. He's a genius. Um, so, well, a lot of the things in the show will prove to be, well, not, not going to hold up. Some of the things in that show will, and yeah. some of the, those things will be pretty profound. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so, go ahead. It's a great show. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great show. I was yeah. just going to quickly add, I remember uh, eating, I believe it was lunch with Mr., well, one of the producers for Ancient Aliens, and um, I'm, I'm sure you know who Henry is. And uh, yeah, I'll go ahead. Yeah, and I remember bringing that up to him, uh, how some of the things that were presented early on on the television show Ancient Aliens seemed a little bit like a stretch, a little bit fabricated. And then, of course, not to mention the whole cowboys and aliens thing, which they were really taken a part of. I thought that was interesting, but of course, that had nothing to do with him and his decisions with the program. Yeah, fabrication is a word I would probably not want to use on that or apply it. Um, yeah, I don't, I haven't seen the earliest episodes in a long time. I'm sure that they, they took some time to find their their zone, their strike zone. Uh, but, but it worked. They, they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They, they have some, first of all, they've got a tremendous um, uh, narrator. Uh, he's one of the best in the, in the, in the country. I, his name, I'll, I'll probably get it while we're looking. He's, uh, I met him. He's a really nice guy too, um, which helped. Obviously. But they, they, they came up with some very key phrases. phrases. Uh, for instance, one of the most key phrases is ancient astronaut theorists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> believe yes. or ancient astronaut theorists suggest and then if they feel they've got um the evidence is pretty strong or looks really good they will go further and say ancient astronaut such and such and such is just the case ancient astronaut theorists say yes so this this phrase ancient astronaut theorists is just right it's a great catchphrase great catchphrase and they're theorists almost everything in that show is theoretical well, I say everything. That's not the case. Almost most of the conclusions are theoretical. Now, there's a lot of hard stuff in there. I mean, it's it's a it's a tour of it's an archaeological tour of the world. I mean, you, you, I have seen so many archaeological sites on that show that I didn't know existed and would probably have never seen otherwise. Right. right. Um. So, and a lot of you know, and, and yeah, Bob Clotworthy, he, he is their narrator. He's he's top. Um. So, um. Uh. And so a lot of the information you get about these sites, a lot of it is hard, hard archaeology. It's time frame, history, what, what happened. Uh, and that's, that's great. Um, the fact that it's in the context of possibly having an alien connection just makes it cooler. It does. And they have the ancient astronaut theorists. So they have, they have been pretty careful about casting the show in such a way that it's not overtly offensive. People who think they absolutely know what happened 5,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Nevertheless, my understanding is that the, Archaeologists, like the, the academic archaeologists, they can they can't bear to watch it, and if they have to, they they start tearing their hair out. And I'm going, yeah, well, too bad. You know, I was going to talk to Dr. Zahi Hawass maybe during the well during last year, during the summer of last year, but we ran into uh, some scheduling issues when he was out here. I think he was in L.A., and I was going to bring up the show, and I don't think he wanted to talk about it. 
he has a hate love I think he has a love hate relationship with it though. Uh, the the show has brought tremendous amount of attention to Egypt and the Giza Plateau and just about every other site in Egypt. And I imagine he likes that. Sure. The conclusions, I say the conclusions, the theories that are being put out drive them up the wall. Um, he doesn't want, he, he's, he wants the Egyptian history to be Egyptian. Uh, there's a lot of patriotism there. There's a lot of, uh, uh obviously, uh, love for, uh, Egypt and the extraordinary history that's been, uh, researched intensively for such a long time, you know, a great deal. And you throw the alien thing in there and it's no longer just Egyptian. And so I, it's a problem for him. And I, I, I respect that. Um, uh, and one day we may know the truth of the matter, hmm. uh, hopefully sooner than later. Seems like politics seems to plague everything then. <laughs> politics can, politics, you can't live without it. You can't live with it. Uh, without politics, without governance, I assure you, everything would go to hell. Just too much. People yeah. say, oh, no, 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 no. It would all become utopia. No. Oh, yeah. There's, there's seven, almost, we're heading towards seven billion people on this planet. And the idea they're just going to get along in a sort of a casual play it by ear way. No. You have to have government. You have to have governance. You just want it to be good governance, and you have to have politics. Yeah, that's a bit of a new age type of mentality to think that we're all going to just get along. No, we're not all just going to get along, but we can tolerate each other. Sure. It, it, polit politics, though, can get really bad. If it gets toxic enough, it can destroy empires. It can destroy nations. Uh, and and if it's really good, it can create some some wonderful environment for people to live a meaningful life. There are countries that have gone very far down that road and have created, I think, very, 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 very strong cultures, very strong uh, uh, institutions, and the people are benefiting from it. Unfortunately, most of these countries are small. They're not particularly large. Uh, but I do believe that uh, the things that they're doing in these countries is scalable if you have the political will to do it. You certainly have the money, but we don't have the political will. And in fact, what we have is a toxic political environment that's getting worse uh, by the year. And as a result, we're not able to to do the things that would, in fact, take us where we want to go. But those who think, well, then the answer is get rid of politics, get rid of government, and it'll all work out. Well, I'm sorry. Yes. That ain't going to fly. It doesn't work that way. And nope. we'll, we'll get back into into um the whole ufology thing in a moment here. But I just wanted to quickly add, since we, we were talking about your episode, well, not exactly your episode, but the episode you were featured in, they were talking about ETs and nuclear weapons. Did you, right. yeah, did you hear about anything else aside from your segment on that show? I'm very familiar with the nuclear weapons tampering uh, issue, which was covered on the show, I'm sure. And, I'll, and I don't think I, I don't expect to have any surprises when I watch it, but they may have a witness that I, I'm not aware of. That's good. New witnesses are coming forward all the time now. But the connection between the ET presence and nukes is one of the most important facts or aspects of this whole phenomenon. It's extremely important. And in a normal situation, in an appropriate functional situation, the United States government would be all over this. And I mean, I mean all over the public connections to this and the public awareness of this, and there would be hearings and so forth. But since the government's position, there are no ETs, and there can't be any ET nuclear tampering events, can they? Right. And somehow these events, which are being, uh, which have many witnesses by high, uh, you know, high security clearance, uh, Air Force officers and so forth, are being caused by weather balloon or swamp gas or whatever the hell they, they think. <laughs> and of course, we know that's all nonsense. So, uh, and if there's ever an issue to have congressional hearings on connected to the ET issue, it would be the fact that they come down and turn our nuclear weapons off. Uh, 
But again, you don't have those hearings. And in fact, nothing is more confirming, in my view, of the truth embargo as being a very formal, well-supported, well-funded policy of the United States government is the fact that there has never been a hearing on nuclear weapons tampering. The government has never issued a statement about it. They try to pretend nothing ever happened, even when confronted with with Air Force officer witnesses and the media under government, how would you say, nudging and pressure of various types has given fairly minimal attention to it and certainly not treated like it is, like it should be. That That's as much testimony you need for a presence of a truth embargo. You don't need any more than that. Should we still be worried about brewing conflict with Iran? We should be worried about a lot of things. They were uh, they were recently yeah. exposed for having a new multiple secret nuclear sites, U.S. versus uh, us against you know Russia and China. It, it seems like the whole Cold War elements are are still at play, and it doesn't uh, seem like it. They are in play, and we have a new arms race underway. We have a breakdown in institutions, international relations. We have got damn near total chaos, and there are people in this town that are pretty savvy people. Uh, that I'm aware of and I've heard from time to time. And they they are not shy about saying that they've never seen anything in their lifetime like this. And they, they some of them have been through World War II, Korean War, the, uh, the Cold War, of course, Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and various other events. And they are not shy about saying, never seen anything like this. Uh, we got to get our act together pretty quickly or... You and I may not have the opportunity to have another interview. My goodness. If there are, in fact, watchers out there, Stephen, let's hope they plan to do some tampering. I wouldn't count on it. Uh, they're, they're, they're involved. They're, they're helping to push this issue forward in various ways. We're talking ETs now. But there's no indication that I've seen that they're, they're planning on taking over and running things because we can't do it. Uh, I, I can't imagine any extraterrestrial species that would want to spend 10 minutes managing 7 million human beings. Uh, Sounds like a headache. They've got much more fun things to do. I don't, they're not going to come down and fix uh, our problems in that sense, but they are pushing forward, helping to push along with everything that's happening terrestrially. They're, they're helping to push forward this disclosure process, leading ultimately to disclosure. And disclosure probably leads quickly to open contact. And open contact opens uh, a whole new door, a door into a realm of possibilities that uh, would motivate, very possibly motivate a huge amount of reform uh, on the planet and with nations and with their policies, not only toward each other, but internally. Uh, I, I call it the great age of reform. It could be triggered by disclosure. It's you can't I can't prove that's going to happen. But and it's very hard to, to make some simple case for it. But if one spends enough time thinking about it, you can almost arrive there. Uh, so that may help fix things. But if we're going to continue to make asses of ourselves, if we're going to continue to throw trillions of dollars down the toilet, if we're going to continue to kill each other, blow each other up, uh, if we're going to continue to uh, attack the environment like it was an enemy, uh, treat it with grotesque greed, uh, a venal kind of you can't have too much. Which is part of the human nature. I mean, we, 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 we spend hundreds of thousands of years running around in, in various environments. If you didn't get enough, you didn't get food that day or you didn't get some cover, you died. And so, you know, the human genetic makeup is you can't have too much. If I find some food, I take it. If I find more, I'll take that. I'll store it. Whatever. You can't have too much. You have to constantly be looking to get stuff in order to make sure you survive. But we're, we're way past that now. But these these qualities of human evolution and human nature 
uh, remain. And so it's no longer about society. It's survival. I got to get much, but rather I just got to get more stuff to have more stuff. I cannot be too rich. I cannot be too powerful. I cannot have too much food. I cannot have too much drugs. I can on and on and on. And that may not seem like a big thing, but when you start to apply it at a global level, institutional level, uh, oh man, it's toxic and, and destructive. And we're, we're in real serious danger right now. People say, Oh no, we're not. It's great. Oh, life is good. Economy's good. Everything's fine. And that's what they want to believe. And I don't blame them. You got a family and kids. You can't be going around thinking, my God, we're, we're, we're dancing on a volcano, the edge of the volcano here. It's not a good way to live. It's not a good way to, to think and, and present yourself to your family. I get that. That's why you have active. Their job is to worry about this stuff. So you can live your life, raise your kids, go to the ball games, whatever. The job of the activist is to see what's wrong and try to point it out, speak truth to power and get change before things go to hell. Let me put it this way. There weren't enough activists in Japan capable prior to the 19, uh, 1940 of, of informing uh, the Japanese people that the militarism of the military class in Japan was going to take the country to hell. Same thing in Germany. There weren't enough activists right, to speak the word out. In a lot of cases, they're shut up. In other words, you, you, you don't do it. You do it to kill you. So I'm not... I'm not necessarily blaming the, the quality of, of, of activism in that time. The United States doesn't do that. We have we have the ability to be an activist. We have the ability to say do a lot. We have some enormous um, gifts, rights that have been provided, and other countries as well. Uh, and so we don't have that excuse. And so there are activists, and they are trying to make things better. They are trying to address some of the worst issues. But the venality of the political class is so intense right now, not just here but elsewhere, China, Russia. Um, we're starting to see certainly some of that banality coming out of Egypt and Pakistan, um, that you know, there aren't enough activists. To, to, only so much you can do. We're only a couple of button pushes away from essentially the Stone Age. It seems it's been like that, that way for a long time. It really does feel that way. Well, it's been that way. It's true. A couple of buttons. Boom. That's it. It's over. Once something gets going, it won't be stopped. People say, oh, no, no, no. They'll blow up a couple of cities, but then they'll say, oh, let's stop. No, they will not. And so we have been dealing with this mutual assert destruction thing for 70 years and we've taken it for granted we've let things go to hell uh we let relationships go to hell uh we haven't dealt, dealt with the et issue which could be a very mitigating force we just i don't know uh, uh, people with the most power and the most money either have become pathological or they were pathological in the first place is what got them there um i i, I it's hard to, to know but the quality of leadership we're getting from the most wealthy and the most powerful is decaying at a rather rapid rate. And uh, if, if we'd fixed everything, if things were in pretty good shape, and then they just kind of want to slack off, that would be one thing. But we hadn't. And so now things are getting really complicated. And, and plus, the world's getting more complicated. The, the internet has made the world a lot more complicated. Oh, yeah. Uh, and if anybody hasn't figured that out yet, boy, they need <laughs> to, to, to pay attention. Um, Very true. And and other things. So it, in other words, is is as difficult as is World War II was, uh, and and the, and the difficulty was faced by the leaders of that time, uh, whether it was Churchill or Stalin or Roosevelt, they were playing checkers compared to what the world leaders today are facing in terms of the complexity of the issues and the difficulty in figuring out what the hell is going on, what could go wrong. Not too long ago. Uh, one of the former national security guys might have been Clapper, might have been Brennan. I'm not sure which one it was, but someone with substantial background, heavy background in national security. 
And this person had been trying to raise the EMP issue for years. They did get a hearing. They even got uh, sort of a bill. But again, it's like pulling teeth, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank God our fire departments don't work that way. I mean, the, you know, the building's on fire and you go down, you call up the fire department and they spend a couple of weeks sort of working it through and talking about it and going, and then they could take vacation. And of course, everything burns to the ground. Well, that's the Congress. That's the political class in America. They got a little bit done. Finally wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And what he said was that if a nuclear weapon, the right altitude, were to go off over the United States, which means it could be an orbital weapon, and we got a, an EMP that pretty much affected the country from coast to coast, that within one year, one third of the American people would be dead. And there was a few comments about it, and it disappeared into the void. Mm. Like, hey, what can you do? <laughs> what can you do? Uh, well, activists don't. When activists, an activist, particularly if you're a working on national issues, global, when something like that turns up, activists don't forget about it. Everybody else goes back to their life. I get it. The activists don't forget. And our job is to remind people from time to time. And they say, oh, you're fear-mongering. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. You know, one person's fear-mongering is another person's early warning. Right? Uh, and there is a difference between the two. And this term fear-mongering is tossed around a lot by people that really don't know what the hell they're talking about and don't care. And it's just glib. Right? There is such a thing as fear-mongering. But uh, uh, frequently, more often than not, By the way, they're labeling that on stuff that that's not the case. In fact, it's legitimate concerns. And I could go on about the things that are screwed up. But I wouldn't do that. But let me tell you, we are not in good shape. And, any, and people need to at least acknowledge that and then go back to leading the best life they can and maybe support those that are trying to, to correct these problems. But it's, it's bad because the vast majority of American people, they want to just live their life. They don't want to hear about the problems, and they don't want to support those that are trying to fix them. Yes. And so one day, their wonderful life is going to come to an end, and they're going to be looking around going, how did this happen? Who did this? How could we have gone and done this? Hey, it's like it's like Charlton Heston on the beach in, in the very first uh, uh, Planet of the Apes movie mm. <laughs> uh, in front of the Statue of Liberty, right. pounding the sand, saying, God damn you, God great, damn you. Great scene. He blew it all up. Yeah, well. Uh, we, we can still blow it all up. That's true. And I'm all with you about that. Uh, those out there who have become very complacent, very content with everything in their lives, those who just rush home to watch their favorite TV show and eat their favorite TV dinner meal, whatever it is, uh, those folks out there are the ones that I'm always concerned about. Those are the uh, majority of those here in America, I would have to say, the, the mainstream, the masses. Sure. And it's easy to pound on. And I, and I, I, don't, I don't really want to do that. Yeah, I don't fact, mean to. I, sh I should point out that one of the effects of toxic politics, of self-centered, uh, corrupt uh, uh, political actions, and is, is that uh, people become just disgusted. Uh, and, and one of the ways you react to disgust is you move away from it. Uh, you don't dive into it. You go the other direction. And so a lot of the complacency that exists and the lack of involvement, and this is, this is one of the, this is like a dynamic that is very dangerous. In other words, the worse politics get, the more people get disgusted, the more they withdraw, the less they're willing to engage. Therefore, it can get worse and worse. And so you've got a cycle here of, of, of increasing dysfunction and increasing detachment by the people simultaneously happening and feeding each other. And that, and that's how. And this is a simple way of saying how major empires in the past and kingdoms and countries went from being pretty pretty good shape to gone. Dust. Ozymandias. Dust. Because that cycle. And very vicious. It's allowed to go on too long. It happened in Germany. That cycle got going in Germany and, and, and it ended up with German Germany primarily a pile of bricks, moldering bricks. 
They had to rebuild the whole damn thing, which is great. They rebuilt it well, but they can return it to a pile of bricks. Anytime. Yes. It could happen tomorrow. That's true. And we are getting close to uh, shutting this down here, but I did have a few more questions to ask you. And I know you have sure. to get going pretty soon here, but since we're talking about politics, I just want to get your opinion on the Democrats out there. Are Are you at all in any belief that they will have enough moxie to take it to on Donald Trump? And you're, yeah, you're talking partisan politics. Sure. I'm not a partisan political pundit. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't address it that way. Uh, so let me address it this way. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, the elections that we've been having going all the way back to, uh, 92, um, have been increasingly dysfunctional. The process is breaking. The RNC and the DNC are, have, have, have pursued, uh, destructive, uh, protocols voter suppression, uh, unfair treatment of candidates, and on and on and on. Uh, we had a disastrous election in 2000 uh, that created a lot of harmony. Uh, the election of 2016 clearly was an absolute mess, a fiasco of unprecedented proportions. I'm not getting into the who's and, and the, I'm not getting into the, the people. I'm talking about the process itself. And by the and way, I, I, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm bipartisan, by the way. I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm actually a registered green a party member, even though that's, you know, that's never going to happen here. But go ahead. Well, let me let me say I am professionally partisan. Personally, is another matter. But nevertheless, um, so when I watch the you know, looking at the Democrats, yeah. uh, they've got a lot of reforming to do. Uh, in order to be party they want to be. Uh, and it's, it's just as it was last year and it's gotten worse and worse. One of the things that is maddening is that you can call it democracy if you want, and it is democracy, is that one of the, one of the, uh, results of this dysfunction that I'm referring to is that the elections have gotten longer and longer and longer. And so you get into office and then the next day you're campaigning for the next office. Now, even with the presidency, uh, it's almost getting to the point where the next day, but, but the campaigns are now starting almost two years ahead of the election. Uh, and this is, this is starting to become true even for some of the, uh, the, the, uh, the Senate and congressional candidates. Uh, and then they cost a fortune. Three, four, five billion dollars of money has got to be given to all these thousands of candidates so they can compete with each other in this endless campaign cycle. Parliamentary systems are completely different. In, 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 in Britain, they, they can hold a, they can hold an election, elect a new parliament and a new prime minister, at least the prime minister comes out of the results of the, of the parliament elections. And they can do it in a couple of weeks and it'll cost a few, few hundred quid. It takes us two years and four billion dollars. Money that could be spent far better ways. Now yeah. you can call it democracy. Yeah, yeah, sure. You're, you're, you're putting money in so people can run for office. People that are going to get a Senate job that pays them 180 or something thousand a year, but it took them nine million dollars to win the win the seat. This is this is it's pathetic. Where is this money uh, coming from? That's what I want to know. For the longest time on the news, it was plastered that we were in debt and this and that. And it seems like nowadays they don't ever talk about that at all. Well, where, where is all this money coming from? The United States, America is in debt, 22 trillion dollars, but there's tons of money in the hands of people and corporations. And, uh, uh, the, the trend towards more and more, uh, money in politics was underway. But then when Citizens United was ruled on by the Supreme Court and they basically said money is speech. And since corporations are people, 
corporations can uh, should be able to uh, put lots of money out there, and they came up with various ways to do it, 501c4s and what have you, even anonymously, and then the billions really were turning up. So there's still hundreds of thousands of millions of people that will that put small money into these campaigns, bless their heart. And one of the reasons they do it is they know that their candidate, who they like, uh, is up against some other candidate who's getting huge sums of money spent on their election through uh, with, with, through the through, through the methodologies where as long as they don't directly endorse the candidate, they can they can put all kinds of money up there. And so these little people get together. Oh, we, we got to chip in ten, twenty dollars so they can defend themselves against the massive money. It's a vicious cycle, and it abuses the American people. It insults them, and so that has to be fixed. And that's not a Democrat or a Republican thing. By and large, right. Corporations were given personhood status long ago by legislative law. That was a colossal blunder. And no one has had the political will to try to end it. Corporations are not people. They've never been people. They should never be people. And once you take personhood status away from corporations, then you can relitigate Citizen United. And very likely, well, I don't know about the Supreme Court now, but a reasonable Supreme Court, they would overturn it. And we can start shoving these billions of dollars back out of politics and then maybe shorten the campaign season, bring the primaries closer to the election instead of these states competing with each other to have the first primary. One day, some friggin' state is going to, to say our primary is going to be on January the 21st of the presidential election year. In other words, the president is inaugurated on the 20th of January, and then we'll hold our primary on the 21st simply to be first. This is all simple-minded, childish nonsense. Uh, our elections should start five, six months out. The primary should be compressed. They should be rotated so that the same states are not always the first two. That's also simple-minded nonsense. And we have the technology to do this. We have the means to do this. We have we have a, 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 an election system, electoral system, that is decades, decades, if not a hundred years out of date. Outdated, yeah. It's it's like a it's like it's like the the country is is trying to climb into a a, uh, a Tesla S model, <laughs> and the election process is a Model T. I agree. Uh, and so these are serious matters that are bipartisan. So I'm not seeing too much coming out of the Democrats right now to address this. Understood. They're still doing the same dances. They are. Um, there, there's some things being said that, that have been left out in the past. Uh, but these debates with 10 people on the stage are an mm. insult to our intelligence. Yeah, it's, You can't um, come up with a better thing than that. Yeah, it's a bit of a cluster, you know, to be honest with you. And uh, interesting. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 it's insulting. Yes. You, you got these people that have great backgrounds and you say, okay, you got a couple of minutes. Tell us, tell us how you're going to solve the economy. Uh, and then they can just quibble with each other. No, you don't do this. You find other ways to get these people to debate. You have lots of debates, one-on-one, two-on-two, whatever, but you don't put 10 people up on a stage. But they can't help it because it's like, well, what we do. It's like doing a, a bad, uh, it's like doing a bad podcast when you have like 10 people on at once. And so they, they haven't figured that out. There's just so much wrong with the system. You could go on all day long. And then people, people are now, well, why isn't it working? Why, why, why does anything work? It's like getting into a car that hasn't been, uh, serviced for 150,000 miles. It's got maybe 20 things wrong with it, but it still sort of moves. And so you get in the car and you're driving up the road, maybe going to work and it's really making noise and it's not going very fast. And you're bitching and bitching and bitching about, man, this is bad. It's terrible. It's a terrible car. I can't live with this. And then someone points out to you, well, when was the last time you serviced it? Oh, I, I've never serviced it. I don't have the time. I like where you're coming it's from. Like that. I like where you're coming from tonight here. Making a lot of sense, Stephen. 
making sense. Making a lot right, of sense. Man, now if I could just make some sense with a C. <laughs> You're making lots of sense here. That's a very logical and reasonable point there. And that brings me to one Bernie Sanders. He's also someone who mentioned ETs uh, most recently he as did. well. What, what's your thoughts and reactions about that? Here's my thoughts and reactions. In the last presidential campaign, because of the work I was doing in Washington, D.C., uh, we were able to get the story underway about the E.T. issue. Right. Because of its connection to the Clinton campaign, Clinton people, Hillary and John Podesta and all that. I mean, they were the leading candidate. They were the leading candidacy. And, and a connection to the E.T. issue by the leading candidacy is actually a pretty substantial story. And we actually got it going and generated 400 articles in all the papers, all the English language papers around the world, certainly, uh, all the major papers in the U.S., uh, there were statements being made on numerous television shows and so forth that the campaign was forced out of cover, had to say had to say something and did. And so there was a great deal. It, it, it did not trigger what I wanted it to trigger. And, and the campaign debates were able to stay away from it to their everlasting disgrace. Uh, but nevertheless, was a huge amount of coverage of the ET connection to the leading presidential candidate. And so now we start the next election cycle and we started off with 24 candidates. And you're wondering, where, have they, where were they? The last four years, were they in a, did they just all go off and live underwater or something? Were they in a cave? They 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 watched all of that happen. You don't think the presidential candidates that are on those stages now, even the ones that have dropped out, weren't paying really close attention to the last election? And so they they saw all these articles. They saw Hillary and Podesta making those statements about the ET issue. They saw it all. And so now they're running for Congress, and it's like it never existed. It never happened. A little statement by Bernie Sanders at the end of a Joe Rogan right. podcast. A, a very tiny statement by by uh, candidate Yang. Uh, I'm not sure any other candidate has said anything. I don't think so. That's it. It's tiny, right? As if that entire connection that existed in that last massive campaign that cost an absolute bloody fortune didn't happen. Now, I'm not impressed by that. Interesting. I realize they want to win. They want to win so bad they can taste it every day. I get it. They want to change the world. I get it. But they have the same problem that every candidate virtually has had in my lifetime. Well, not my adult. They want that job and they want to change the world, but they do not want to speak truth to power. They want to uh, couch it, finesse it, uh, play with it. But to be direct and to be direct about all things, meaning, okay, here's a list of things I can talk about. Here's a list of things I won't talk about. Well, candidate, there's a lot of very important things on this list. Yeah, but I can't talk about this. Why not? Because I could probably lose votes. So in other words, winning is priority and actually talking about the truth is, well, incidental. Mm. They're pretty much all in that zone, even though some of them occasionally will impress you, but it's mostly theater. There is some intensity and some consistency. But it's usually about a couple of issues. The moment you stray out of those issues, nothing, nada. You know, it's like the moon is blowing up. Uh, yeah, look, I can't get into that now. I want to talk about healthcare. Yeah, but the moon is blowing up. So am I impressed with the political process this time around? Not yet. Um, do I know how it's going to play out? I don't. Your comments do I don't, think it's going to, your, your comments don't surprise me one bit. Well, so in other words, I am a political activist and I can talk political, but again, the only reason that I talk political and, I, and I'm willing to go into those areas all is because the dysfunction in the political system is, has huge impact on the disclosure process. It always has. Uh, so um, uh, this dysfunction, which is endemic, it's pretty much throughout the whole system. North Carolina just held a vote in the North Carolina uh, legislature down there where uh, there was a vote that was going to be, I think, to override a veto by the governor who's one party. And the 
party that is the same party as the governor, basically told the uh, – how will you say? Let it be known to the Democrats somehow that there was going to be no vote in a certain day because of the 911 commemoration and then went ahead without enough Democrats there and passed the vote. About as venal a uh, maneuver as you could possibly make, and that's that's typical. So all of this dysfunction is preventing us from getting disclosure, and disclosure is the most profound event in human history, which has the potential to change this world in ways we can only imagine. And so, yeah, increasingly I'm speaking to that dysfunction. Yes, you are. Because it's a barrier. It's like it's like there's a lot of things you want to do with your life, but you've got a giant tumor coming out of the side of your back, out of the side of your head, rather. And so at some point you've got to address that too or you're not going to be able to do anything. And so if we don't address the political reforms that are needed, we're not going to get disclosure. We're not going to end the arms race. We're not going to avoid uh, environmental collapse. And it'll all be moot. It just won't matter. Um, so it's increasingly more difficult for me to separate it. But I am going to do my damnness to be nonpartisan in these assessments. Uh, you can find, you know, anybody can find reasons why, well, the one side is better than the other. Fine. You can do it. It's not hard. Whichever side you want doesn't matter. But unless you understand that both sides are part of an increasingly dysfunctional system, then you're not going to, there's going to be progress. You're just going to keep swapping out dysfunctional leadership one after another, back and forth, back and forth, spinning your wheels, which is what we've been doing primarily. God, going certainly back to the 1990s, if not the 1980s. But the dysfunction that, that America is suffering now, its origins go back really further than that. It goes back to the mid-60s. I like to use 64 as the starting year when things, the wheels started to come off the great American experiment. Um, up until then, there was oh, – up until then, we were making progress. So we'd had some terrible things in the past. We were making progress and moving away from them and towards uh, a, a, a country worthy of the modern world. And then in 64, the wheels started to come off and they've not been put back on. I agree with you, by the way, in terms of the 60s, you had all sorts of different movements going on during that time. Absolutely. And by oh, the yeah, way, but it wasn't the movements mm -hmm. that caused the wheels to fall off. The, the movements were in response to the fact that a lot of people were, wait, wait a minute, the wheels are coming off the car here. And they started to react, continue to react for years. Now, the beginning of the this era of growing dysfunction in mind. I'm not necessarily speaking economically, though 22 trillion in debt is not advancement. But nevertheless, there are people that are making money. There are people that are very rich. I get that. It was the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. When Johnson jumped on the reports coming out of the Gulf of Tonkin, slammed a resolution, I think in 48 hours or less, through the Congress, giving them full justification to expand the Vietnam War ad infinitum. That was the beginning. From that point forward, we've been heading down. Downhill. And deeper into the hole. Uh, we had a moment when we thought we were getting out, but we really weren't. And so the question is, what's going to happen next? I don't know. Uh, there's 10,000 areas that one could address with respect to changing course. I got one disclosure, and I happen to think it's, uh, it's the biggest lever out there. And there, every, there's all kinds of little levers you could apply to the American dysfunction right now, little little pressure points like acupuncture. You could push here, push there, and maybe a little modification. Nothing compares to the power of disclosure change the situation, to change the rules, redirect, and so forth. Nothing. And interestingly enough, that particular lever has the most pushback by government of any other lever. Nothing else comes close. Well, I am hoping the very best for you, Stephen. I really do hope you get lots of things going on out there, lots of minds opened up to a lot of the things that we are talking about now out there when you make your return out there to Washington. 
talked gone to back, but well, the podcast, yeah, yes, that, the, the podcast, podcast starts early October. Yes. So I hope people will listen. I hope they'll support it at Indiegogo, the Disclosure Wire podcast or the Disclosure Wire. Uh, and uh, we'll give you the best we can. No doubt. And before I let you go, I must ask you, since this is the day after 9-11, do you yes. have any recollection of 9-11, what happened that Tuesday morning, Stephen? I remember it. Well, who doesn't? It's uh, true. Yeah. I was, uh, I was, I had an apartment the last time I had my own place. Um, uh, I was in bed and a good friend of mine called me, woke me up and said, uh, plane hit the Pentagon. And, uh, wait a minute, let me think about this. No, he said a plane hit the one of the towers and I didn't think about it much. I mean, the damn things are very tall and something could crash into them. And, right. and uh, I said, okay. And he, I think went back to watching TV and I went back to sleep and, because I tend to work late. That's okay. I, I'm a night guy. I mean, God knows, I probably was up when he computer till three in the morning. I go back to sleep. And then not too long after that, he calls me up again. And he says, well, a plane has now hit the Pentagon. And even in my foggy, sleepy uh, state, I, I instantly knew that's terrorism. And that's a big deal. And so I got out of bed. I went over and I turned on the television. And then for I don't know how many days and weeks and months, I saw those towers come down a thousand times. I don't know. Uh, and I watched the coverage intensively and proceeded to develop massive gastrointestinal problems. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what happened. And uh, I was having fits, reflux, worst in my life, bad enough to send me to the emergency room. And they were sticking tubes in every orifice I had looking for a problem. Yikes. I couldn't find anything. It was nothing but pure internalized stress uh, because I knew I knew what it meant. Again, if you're an activist and you're paying attention to this stuff a lot, you sort of know things a lot quicker than maybe the average Joe or Jane. And uh, I knew it meant war. I knew that it, I knew that the disclosure process was completely shoved off the table. It was no longer there. It had blown completely. Stephen Greer's efforts with the with the disclosure project were basically blown sky high. I knew all of that, and I know enough about the political system to know that they weren't going to deal with it well. They weren't going to handle it well. They were going to screw it up, and they they exceeded my wildest <laughs> expectations. That's what I remember. Uh, a beginning of a new era in stupidity, arrogance, waste, and destruction. Uh, and since I, the, the previous kind of episode was, again, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution, which happened just as I went to college. And that affected me, too. I mean, that was also the beginning of an era, a substantial era right. of waste, destruction, stupidity. And it affected me a lot, changed my life. Uh, it derailed me. I was I was knocked off my my uh, skis, and I didn't get back on my skis for 20-some years. But I did. And uh, uh, five years after I got it together and got into this issue, as it, as it happens, it happened again. And for me, but it was worse. Uh, Golf of Tonkin's resolution was, was a thing passed in Congress. A lot of people didn't even know about it until m much later. The implications of it were absolutely clear, but on... September 11th, 2001, the implications were immediate and obvious. I knew exactly what was going to happen next, pretty much. And I knew how bad it was going to be. And it just made me sick, literally made me sick. And I, what got me out of it, I was in not in good shape, is that I found another, another project, another way to move forward and, and, uh, and made a decision to try to get on the November ballot in the 2002 election. And I, that, that was all happening around. June uh, or so of uh, 2002. So in other words, I got real sick and you know, not in good shape for about eight months. 
And then I, I found a project. And, and so I, I, I got involved in that election. I did get the signatures and I got on the ballot. And, and uh, that was the first. That's never happened before. It's happened since. A couple people have done it. Hildebrand uh, uh, was the third, uh, fellow by the name of Hildebrand. And then uh, uh, Joe Buckland was the second. And I think there's been another since. Um, and that pulled me out of it. Uh, but, you know, it seems like when anything happens like that, the nature of the leadership that we have created seizes upon it and uses it to do as much damage as they can. It's happened over and over again. And they prey upon the people's patriotism. They prey upon their sentiments and they just manipulate the hell out of them because they've got this thing that happened. Uh, there seems to be no other alternative, nothing. And we get more destruction, building up millions of blood feuds that will last for a thousand years that guarantee that the process will go on seemingly forever. And that's what was going through my mind. September 11th, 2000. Pretty heavy stuff there, Mr. Bassett. It's a heavy world. Yes, sir. Mr. Khan. Mr. Deacon, <laughs> yes. And of course, you are listening Deacon. to Stephen Bassett. His website is paradigmresearchgroup.org, I believe. Paradigmresearchgroup.org. Got a link there to Indiegogo, the Disclosure Wire podcast uh, funding. Got about 2700 out of 10000 And that money is going to go for the equipment to make the podcast as hot as possible. Love that. I don't know what that means. <laughs> But no, it's all about tech, right? Oh, yes. You can't have too good a tech when it comes to broadcasting uh, without getting carried away. You want to get up to a certain level, and you that's what that's about. You have to get carried I'm away. It's, it's, it, it, it's almost 2020. you got to get that audio up and that video yeah, quality up. i got to get that video. I've always been behind the curve technologically. My website was an absolute ancient thing, pitiful ancient <laughs> antique for like, uh, what, how many years? From 96 to 2017. Uh, and uh, I finally upgraded it, finally plunged in and learned WordPress and upgraded it and made nice. it a pretty cool site. Uh, only 20, like how many years now? 96, 2006. Oh, well, some, some, webs years. Well, some websites are nice. Having the old school uh, sort of hosting that looks like a, Not mine. Like Trust a, me. <laughs> like Not an angel fire hosted website. Yeah. But all things, all things, you know, by the way, what I've learned, Michael, is that Tiffy is an activist. You, 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 you might learn this is that. An activist wants something to change, and they want it to change now. And they have all these plans, and they have all these projects, whether it's one person or whether it's a massive group, right? And there have been, obviously, some huge mass social activist movements. And they all want it. And, and they plan this, and they plan that. But history has its own time frame. History, of course, reality is way more complex than any particular activist movement. What goes on in this world is the things that are happening on even a single day are uncountable. So the ability, I mean, people with super, the, 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 the Pentagon has got supercomputers that are massive and they, they, they're trillions of terabytes of, 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 uh, space and, and, and speed and, and, uh, they calculate everything, try to project what may happen. Well, the people in an activist movement are not supercomputers. And so they're trying to decide what to do. History ultimately ends up deciding you, the time frame happens kind of when history allows it to happen. Uh, and you can prepare and you can nudge things, but overall, and, and so, when I ended up creating that website in uh, end of 2017, finally went out with it, I think, in January 2018, I had a strong sense that, yeah, that's when you're supposed to have the website, Steve. You could have done it 10 years sooner. It wouldn't have made a damn bit of difference. Right? Late, the time had arrived and, and history was right, and so you did it. Okay. Uh, so don't don't beat yourself up too much. Uh, this is true. I don't know if this is true of business. 
but in terms of activism, when you're when you're actually not deal, dealing in a confined set of variables that business deals with, uh, which are defined and you can sort of understand them and control them, with activism, you're dealing with literally reality itself. The actions of uncounted numbers of people and organizations, and political decisions and, and everything and other things, including natural events, all of that you're dealing with. And you're trying to sort try to chart a course that changes something within that that set of variables. And you're just, it's, it's way more difficult. It's overwhelming. And so there's a certain pace that history, you don't make history. History comes to you and you don't make the schedule. History will make it for you. Just be ready to do what you need to do when the historical opportunity arises. And be prepared to be set back by the historical event that can turn up at any time, like nine one one, right, in two thousand one. So, uh, but I'm I'm still optimistic and I'm still here, Michael. So thanks for letting me on the show. And after uh, after I get the podcast running, uh, let's uh, let's do another one. No problem. Let's do it for sure. And again, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. It's always fun to catch up with you, and I look forward to the next outing we have. Absolutely. Yes, sir. And again, thank you so much for being here. And any any final word for any of your listeners out there before I let you go? The cutting edge of the disclosure process right now is the To the Stars Academy of Arts and Science and the team that came out of the military intelligence complex to create that in the public sector. Uh, it's getting plenty of criticism and attacks and so forth and so forth. I get it. I didn't, that would be shocking if there weren't. Right. But that's the cutting edge. And they're right now in the best position to force this finally to a resolution. Uh, and that resolution means disclosure. And so in a sense, I'm just trying to catch up with them. I'm trying to be in the bulk, in the vicinity of the process, add a little to it. But they are the point of the fear right now. And they deserve much credit as they can be given. They deserve some leeway. They deserve some appreciation and understanding. Not that I'm saying you can't criticize, criticize, criticize. That's what we do. Everybody's a critic in America. You know, that's why they invented Yelp. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. But they are the point of the spear. I still I support what they're doing, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what they're going to do next. Me too. Someone has to do it. Yeah. Someone yes. always has to do it. Yes, sir. Again, thank you so All much. Right, sir. Yes, sir. And we'll talk again in the near future. Yes, indeed. All okay, right. Mike. Good Bye. night. Bye-bye. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was one Stephen Bassett, a great guy, a great guest, and I look forward to whatever he has in store for all of you out there. Those who want to know more about disclosure, some even say we had a bit of a soft disclosure just last year, and all sorts of things are coming to fruition now, and hopefully in the future we have more of these things come forward, more of the so-called disclosure. Hopefully we have much more of this coming soon, and I want to thank all of you out there on Patreon who have donated, and now you are listening to this in very high-quality audio which I appreciate greatly. I'm glad many of you have signed up. I appreciate all of you, every single one of you out there. And don't be afraid to suggest any sort of a guest that you want to hear on this program. Definitely let me know, and I'll try my hardest. And of course, international listeners out there, thank you so much for your support too. Stay safe, everyone, no matter where you are on this island earth. I'm Michael Deacon, and with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night, everybody. You are looking at a remarkable idea, an idea that has intrigued and attracted and literally thrilled thousands upon thousands of men, women, and children. And you, my friends 
are about to witness this idea become a reality. For this is the story of the miracle sea in the desert. Michael Deacon, 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 Yeah. <laughs> 